Hello and welcome to episode 62 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well, if you listened to the last episode, you know we were talking about RacketCon, uh, which is going to be held in St. Louis, and it's going to you know, feature things about the racket language, obviously. Uh, there's another interesting conference coming up that might be of interest to people that are into Clojure and the other things we talk about in the show. I'm talking about the Scheme and Functional Programming Workshop, um, which is going to feature all sorts of interesting talks about Scheme, but not just Scheme, uh, functional programming in general. Um, you can find out more about it at uh, www.schemeworkshop.org. Um, but the important things to know are it's the 19th of November, it's 2014, and it's being held in Washington, D.C. Now, if you are paying attention, you might be thinking, hey, that's really close to the Conj. As it turns out, the Scheme Workshop is being held in conjunction with the Conj. The 19th is the day before the Conj, and it's at the Grand Hyatt, uh, Washington, D.C., it being the Scheme and Functional Programming Workshop, which is right around the corner from where the Conj is. So if you're going to be there for the Conj, which we really hope you will be, um, you should also strongly consider going to the Scheme and Functional Programming Workshop. Um, tickets are only $20. I mean, if you look at the list of uh, people that are involved, you know, it, it'll be worth your $20. And in fact, it's only $15 if you're going to the Conj because there's a $5 discount for Conj attendees. So uh, I strongly urge you to consider showing up a day early and checking that out. Um, I am going to do my best to do that as well. So I will see you there. And if I don't see you there, I hope to see you at the Conj which is being held November 20th to 22nd in Washington, D.C. Tickets are on sale. You've heard us mention that the early bird tickets sold like hotcakes. Those are all gone, but regular tickets are still available, at least at the time I'm recording this. You can get those at closure-conj.org. So um, sign up for that. Speaking of signing up for things, we also still have some spaces open for David Nolan's webinar. Um, He's going to be giving a webinar on Friday, August 22nd about... Um, things related to um, asynchronous programming and front-end programming, super cool stuff. He's, ab- he's absolutely the right guy to be talking about that. You might know he's the author of Alm, which is uh, uh, a very interesting front-end framework. So, you know, you can go check that out. Go to go.cognitect.com slash core underscore async and sign up there. It's online uh, webinar. So... You can attend right from your desk. All right, so then one last thing to mention. Um, I will be at the Closure DC meetup August 26th, again, 2014. Uh, we're going to be talking about transit, and I might also talk about um, kind of a notebook type approach I've taken to performance testing using org mode and Emacs and uh, Closure. Uh, you can find out more information about that at meetup.com slash Closure DC. Always fun. Um, you know, meetups are good. We it won't just me, blah, blah, blah. You know, there'll be plenty of other fun uh, closurists of all levels of ability to talk to. So um, if you're in the D.C. area, hope to see you there. Um, great. Well, I think that's it for announcements. Let's go on to episode 62 of the Cognicast.
Yeah, all set. Awesome. Well, welcome, welcome, everybody, to the Cognicast. Today is Friday, August 1st in the year 2014, and we are super thrilled to have as our guest today, Eric Norman. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Well, we're super glad that you could make the time to come on and talk to us. Um, But before we get to any topics technical, which I imagine we'll spend most of our time on today, I'm going to ask you about the song that uh, our listeners heard playing us in. What would you like them to be hearing? So I was so ready for this. It's uh, <laughs> Joyeuse Anniversaire by Sekuba Bambino. Okay, awesome. I, I can't say I've ever heard of the band. Um, I mean, I know the uh, I know enough French that's happy birthday, right? <laughs> right, right. Great. Awesome. So is that a band that you um, have some personal relationship to or just some music you like? Um, I've heard it about a million times, if not an order of magnitude more. <laughs> Uh, this was song was being played in uh, taxis and buses uh, while I was in the Peace Corps in Africa. Oh, okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, that's something that maybe we'll have to hit on later, but uh, that's super cool. Okay, so there are approximately 7 billion things we could talk to you about. You know, you are a very, at least from where I sit, a very prominent member of the, the closure community. You've done a lot to educate people about closure and I definitely want to talk about some of that. I guess that as I was sitting around thinking uh, before the show about what uh, what to ask you, I, I kind of uh, wanted to ask you a question we ask a lot of people, which is uh, kind of your origin story. So, you know, let's go back in time to um, before you were uh, doing closure at all. What was your what was your path to the place that you are with it now, which, you know, is obviously quite involved with the, with the language. I wonder if you could give us the the, the, the path, if you will. Well, you know, I, I've always been into computers, so I'll skip all of that stuff. I was first introduced to Lisp in college in an AI course. The textbook was still the Peter Norvig AI book, not the modern approach, but the one before that, which was more about symbolic AI. It's patterns of, is that the patterns? Yeah, patterns, of, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And um, I, uh, I, I didn't really take to it so much, like, I kind of thought it was neat that you could they had all these parentheses and the the semantic model was so clear but I kind of put it down uh, I don't think the teacher was really that into Lisp either so it was it was sort of like he wasn't transferring that to us um, but then I started getting into it uh, more when I was reading some stuff on Emacs Lisp about how you could write a parser and a, a small interpreter in a weekend and uh, so I was like, well, I'll do that. And so I started writing my own, like without really having much knowledge of what was already out there. And so that was like 10 years ago, maybe more. And I just slowly started getting a sense of what was what was out there. Read some Paul Graham essays, and they were very convincing. Read Paul Graham's book. And so then I was using it kind of in, in my classroom projects and stuff. And then I went to... Uh, so, sorry, sorry, at this point you were still doing Emacs Lisp or you were... No, 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 I was using Common Lisp okay. um, for my classroom projects. Yeah, a much better, much better choice. Uh, but uh, teachers thought it was weird, but, you know, <laughs> I finished the projects and other kids didn't. So, like, what are you, you going to do? Right. And uh, so then I, I managed to get a a, a paid way to... A conference. Uh, it was uh, what's it called? Oopsla. Mm-hmm. And the reason I wanted to go was because there there was the Lisp 50 celebration that was being co-hosted. 
uh, and it was like the 50th anniversary of Lisp, and Alan Kay was supposed to be interviewing John McCarthy. I mean, it was going to be really cool. Unfortunately, neither of them went, uh, but it was still pretty cool because I got to hang out with Lisp people that you know I didn't have anybody around me, and they were some pretty big names and stuff. And there, Rich Hickey gave a talk about closure. This was in 2008, just mm-hmm. to give a time frame. Uh, so he gave a talk, and I was kind of skeptical. I was like, uh, everyone makes their own Lisp, you know. You know, do we really want a fork of the community is, is how I saw it. And uh, it was convincing enough to, to get me to try it. And so I gave it a shot, and I just haven't looked back since. So which, I mean, I've, you know, obviously, like a lot of people, I've gone back and scoured the internet for thing, other presentations that Rich has done. This wasn't the, was this the Are We There Yet talk that he gave at Oopsla? Or was, am I thinking of a different uh, venue? Wow, I don't know. Okay. Um, well, we'll look it, it up and be. put it in the show notes. It's not yeah. a big deal. I was, just, I was just curious. I don't know if these talks were recorded, actually. Okay. I haven't seen them around. But I mean, it was a pretty cool thing. the 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 worst part about it, if I can um, be a pessimist for a little bit, <laughs> is that most of the people were old. You know, not that there's anything wrong with being old, but when when your average age is like fifty or sixty, like it doesn't it have the same energy as when you have a bunch of young people, uh, and it doesn't seem like it's going to go anywhere. Uh, and, and so I, I really got that sense of being in the room with all the the people who basically made Lisp what it was, and there were no, or, or, or not no, but there were f- very few young people doing interesting stuff with it. And seeing Rich, who was younger than everybody, who I'm talking about, the 50 to 60-year-olds, with a real vision for the future, you know, I, I, this this is kind of, uh, wow, this is a uh, like a past life, but this common Lisp stuff of when are we going to get something new? When is, when is, uh, when is the next thing going to happen? Like it's, it was just a common theme and there was a lot of pushback on that. Like, no, it's good enough. We don't need anything new. It's it, you don't understand it enough yet. So we're not going to listen to you. And just seeing someone come in with a, with a bunch of new ideas, it was, it was refreshing. I'm curious if I mean, I mean, you know, I, I like the ideas in enclosure, and they drew me in around the same time frame. Um, actually, I, I'm wondering if you had the same experience I did, which was, you know, looking at closure and looking at relative to, to whatever you were using at the time. For me, it was C sharp, but you know, I think it applies to a lot of different in, uh, environments. Do you remember what the specific things that you like? Because, like for me, it was. Oh, concurrency, that's something that I deal with all the time. And, uh, and it turns out, <laughs> as I went down the road, the, the approaches that closure takes mean that I really don't have to spend as much time thinking about that. And it, not that they're unrelated, but it's actually the immutable data structures that turn out to be like the big, the big thing now that I would miss more, uh, more than uh, closure's concurrency structures. There's a couple other things too, but I wonder if you remember what the specific features were that kind of spoke to you at the time. Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. I guess I would say the thing that turned me on the most was the um, the literal syntax mm. for the data structures. Everyone wants to use hash maps, right? But in common Lisp, there's no syntax for it, so and they're mutable. So you're you're just doing like imperative, like add this to the hash map, add this, add this, add that. You know, create a new one, add this, add this, add this, add this. 
you know what what inevitably happens is you like get tired of that and you write a macro and there's there's ways around it and you know it's not it's not terrible but it just became much more declarative much more freeing to use the proper data structure for the problem that you had and i really like that approach of having um i mean the data structures are phenomenal and they're described uh, in a way that makes you understand why you would use them, right? Like this is about order and this one is about the set is just about membership and it's not about order at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, we don't guarantee any order. And the, the, the hash map is about key value pairs, also not about order, right? So there's all these, there's all these things about them that I really liked. And then Secondarily to that is is you know Lisp is is really a a procedural language that just happens. Are, are to you be, referring to you're referring to Common Lisp when you say Lisp? Um, I'm referring to to all Lisps. Okay, but yeah, Common Lisp specifically, um, it's a procedural language, and it just happens to be uh, really good at helping you do functional programming. Hmm. And I guess what I mean by that is like look at the enclosure the do do notation right it's like do this one then do the first one then do the second one then do the third one and you know you always say presumably for side effects right like it's the procedural is always there right but closure adds on top this the idea with the immutable data structures that you really do want to be doing functional programming and you have the same issues with procedural in common Lisp, uh, that sure I wrote a really nice function, but oh, it has to copy its data structures when it when it gets called because you don't know what other what other bits of code are going to do to it. Mm. Yeah, I actually had the experience of um, uh, getting brought in for a very brief period on a, a large uh, common Lisp code base. It was you know forty fifty lines of um, pretty tight common Lisp, so that's a significant system. And, uh, you know, they were doing high-speed processing and they had, you know, mutable data everywhere. And there was a, there was a, there was a point where they had to kind of stop the world to avoid those things. Huh. And, and it, you know, it was, you could see where, I'm not going to do a justice to it, because it actually was quite a sophisticated system. This was not written by inexperienced people or, or people that didn't understand the language. It was, they were employing the tools to achieve an end um, in a very sophisticated way, but... Just looking at it, I was really struck by the by the way that, as you say, like mutation and the imperative nature of it, kind of percolate out when you don't have default immutability that makes and high quality immutable data structures, right? Which is the key that right. makes the functional approach the the garden path. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, please continue. Uh, yeah. Uh, the other thing about the literal data structures is because. So, so Lisp really the only literal data structure you have is the list mm-hmm. in Common Lisp, and you have to quote it right to get it literal to make it literal. And the evaluation semantics of closure were really well chosen. So you could actually embed the the values that are assigned to variables into your lists, right? And that made it really easy to do DSLs. Uh, I guess what you'd call DSLs, where you're really just building up a data structure, and then you have an interpreter for that data structure. 
And it's the kind of stuff that people talk about in, in Lisp. Like, you know, everyone's like, oh, macros, it lets you do metaprogramming. But, I mean, really, the beautiful thing about Lisp is the data-driven stuff that you see in principles of artificial intelligence programming, the one we referred to before. Mm-hmm. That's, where, that's where stuff gets real. Like, that's where it's like, wow, I didn't know I could just, like, pattern match on this and say what it's going to do and then pattern match on that, say what it's going to do. Very declarative. Like I said, in, in Common Lisp, to not have to quote, you have to use a macro or something. And, yeah, you just get it, – it, it's not as clean. Can I, Sorry, can I get you to unpack that a little bit? Because, I mean, I think at least some listeners and I am sitting here thinking, well, you do have to quote – lists in closure are you talking about the fact that there's a vector literal that you can use for this much many of the same purposes yeah exactly that that the list people don't use lists so much in closure right right you use a vector when you want just like a literal sequence type right Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you have maps that are literal so you're not you don't have to build it up one element at a time and you have sets I, I've often wished for more. <laughs> like, it'd be really cool if there was other stuff. I don't know what it would be. But because when you're building the DSL, often you switch on the type of data structure you're looking at. Like, oh, a set means, you know, a set means I'm going to do alternation. And a, a sequence, like a vector, means I'm going to do sequence. Right, right, right. right, right. Something like that. Mm-hmm. But then you're like, oh, but I wish there was something like a, a third option because I need to do this other thing and uh, there's no data structures left, right? I've used them all. But um, to some degree you have, um, uh, and this is sort of timely, you know, because transit gives us this to us in the JSON world, but you have that in um, in Eden with tag literals, right? Where you have a, a reasonable, um, you could argue, syntax for introducing new data types. Right, that's that's right. And um, that's I, that was one of the reasons I was really excited about it when it, when it came out. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you again. Please continue. Oh, well, so you asked me to unpack. Yeah, so, you know, you build up these structures, and you might not even know you're doing it, right? But just going from in in Lisp where you're, like, looking at the car and the cutter of something and, and doing a quality on it to a real data structure that has evaluation semantics, like, not quoted that you can just do anywhere, right? You don't have to do it in a macro. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it it was night and day. And you don't use so many macros. Like macros, I mean, Rich talks about this all the time, that macros are for humans. And what you see a lot of in, in Common Lisp is people using macros as kind of like the logic of their program. Mm. And there's no way to do it without a macro. And, you know, also there's a lot of other stuff in, in Clojure, like getting rid of a lot of the excess parentheses. That's something that I have to explain to people a lot, that, like, if you if you look at Common Lisp from when you're in college, you had to take a class on it. There's all these parentheses that I think even I forget all the time are there. Like, when you have a let, you do a, you say let, and then you open parentheses, and then you have to do pairs, right? You have to do a open another open parentheses x is 10 close parentheses open parentheses y is 20 close parentheses and then close that whole grouping all the bindings so you have like all these pairs <clears throat> excuse me same with a cond like a cond 
it's a predicate and body pair, right? So you got all these things that in closure we don't have to we don't have to do. It just seemed like a tidying up. You can see why they have them in Common Lisp. It it makes it much easier. It makes your interpreter and compiler simpler, uh, I guess you'd say, because you're not complexing the pairing with the. So if you if you had to write a uh, an interpreter for a cond in in closure, you have to build up the pairs yourself, right? right? And they are and, pairs, right? Like if you think about it, yeah, those things are really pairs. are pairs. So the if you, all you have is um, and I think correct me if I'm wrong, Common Lisp actually does have a vector literal syntax, but certainly I don't think anybody would argue that Clojure has more literal data types. But um, but yeah, if if, if you started with well, I'm going to build my language out of um out of lists or conses, then the actual like straight up mapping to what you're doing is it's a list of pairs, right? So that that syntax does make sense from the perspective of the semantics of the language, right? But it's but, it's a closer mapping of the semantics to the syntax, right? Which makes it much easier to interpret, right? 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 But it's you're saving people's pinkies, right? <laughs> it's funny, I actually. Typing. I actually just ordered a let me let me completely derail. Let's talk about sure. me, Eric, is what I'm trying to say here. Let's okay. talk about me. I just ordered a um well not just. I've had it sitting next to my desk for a while now, but I've got an Ergodox keyboard, which is one of these funky mm. ergonomic keyboards. And one of the cool things about it is that you have the ability to um like add additional layers because there's more than more than the usual number of modifier keys. And I might play around with putting open paren on the home row with one of the um Oh. You know what I mean? So like that would move way down to like maybe like right thumb and left index finger or something like that. That's a great idea. I would I would make some other character like comma or something. I would put that as a shift and so you could you could not even have a shift a modifier key for it. That would be great. Some some other time when we actually are talking about me and not you I'll 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 talk to you about my <laughs> uh my crazy um uh keyboard setup that I've done where I've actually got a machine at home. I don't have it here on my laptop. I've got a machine at home where the home row keys, so ASDF on the one hand and um, you know JKL semicolon on the other, actually do function as modifier keys, shift, control, alt. Oh. Yeah, it's it's that sounds funky. Kind of funky. It totally works. I've been using it every day for years. But anyway, we we really are talking about you. I really genuinely I'm fascinated to hear more about your. It's easy to get me to go off and talk about my crazy schemes, but. But I'm, so please, I've said this too many times already. So obviously, I'm doing a terrible job being a host. But um, please, please continue. We were talking about so we were talking about your road to closure, and you know, you said a couple of the things you liked were literal data types, that the way that they enable functional programming, and of course, there's a bunch of syntax things that that you and and frankly, I prefer. But so you know, kind of maybe take it from there. You know, you're like, okay, great. There's this neat new language that Rich showed me, and then you know, you went somehow from there to the point you're at now, which I really want to talk about at some point, but what was the, what was the kind of the arc? How did the arc go from there? Uh, so let me, let me take one little step back. Sure. So before I, before I learned really that I like closure, I was really into common lisp and was reading everything about it, uh, that I could. And, uh, I saw something online. This was like the heyday of video, right? Like, if you found a video online about something that you were into that wasn't cats, like <laughs> it was like, let's watch this. I'm gonna download it, you know, mm-hmm. save it to my hard drive, because you didn't trust that it, like, 
you probably had to change the codec and everything. Anyway, <laughs> I saw somebody do a video that was just a screencast of them programming Reddit in Common Lisp. And it was like, it's a 10 minute video, maybe 15 minutes. And the, the story is that Reddit, the first version of Reddit, was actually written in Common Lisp. Mm hmm. And they were having all sorts of library problems, like finding libraries to do some modern things like uh, soap services. They had to talk to a soap service for some reason. and So it was just like one problem after another, so they rewrote it in Python, right? <laughs> yep. And there was a kind of a grumbling in the Lisp community, like, oh, but that was going to be a successful Lisp company, and I was going to go work for them, and you know, they would champion the language and whatever. Uh, now it's Python, you know. And someone made it, like, look, you can write Reddit in Common Lisp. Like, I'll do it in 15 minutes. So, you know, I I looked at it, and I was like, I had my own thing. I was like, hey, I could make that video, you know, and mm -hmm. I could probably make it a little better. So. I made a video that was like a basic link sharing site and it did it in common lisp. There was no audio. Like I just typed out enough information and comments. You know, I was like, now I'm going to do this, right? I just type it out. And then, you know, people are like, oh, you need audio. You need to do this. You need to do that. Like I can't read it. It needs to be higher resolution. So, you know, I, I fixed it up. And, you know, back then, YouTube didn't have high enough resolution to to read text on a on a screen mm -hmm. uh, so I had to find a hosting service because when I put it on my blog it crashed my blog <laughs> um, this was back when like all the reddit guys were Lisp people so you know you type you know you put someone posted it to reddit as like you know reddit clone in in 20 minutes and it crashed my site uh, I put it on one of these hosting things um, that had high res, and that was the start of Lispcast. Mm -hmm. I then I was like, oh well, I need a blog to like talk about this, so I put put a, a, a WordPress or something, and I just made about over the, over the next year or two, I made like eight or nine of them, and it just took the same site and just kept adding to it and adding to it, doing tests, and I even did like continuation passing stuff which was really big in in common list i i swear i've i swear i've seen these i mean this was um they're still online this was a while ago but i mean i think i remember when you when you might remember when you put these up because i went through a a common list phase as well um uh -huh. and right around kind of this kind of the same time as you so uh yeah, sorry that's just threw me into the wayback machine okay yeah so so sorry you were saying you're making these you're making these videos and you're putting them up yeah so i uh they 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 kind of dwindled, you know. I think people were the way I see it. People who like a little bit interested in Lisp like flooded it when the first one came out, mm -hmm. and then they got a little deeper and deeper. And they're you know the people who could understand them at that point were you know not interested in in some beginner stuff. Sure. So. It, like the ninth one, maybe twenty people watched it. You know, it, it just wasn't it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. But they got me into blogging, right? So I just started blogging, and I was blogging a lot of common lists. And then I got it into closure, started blogging about that, and I wanted, I always wanted to do closure videos, but I just didn't feel like I was ready. 
Like there, I didn't know the language well enough. I was just going to be translating common Lisp stuff into closure. And I really wanted to, I wanted to be, I, I wanted to feel confident in my own like authority to say, this is a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just kind of put them on the side. This was back in 2008, 2009. I mean, I might've made a video or two that was like how to install closure that two weeks later didn't work anymore. Right. That's <laughs> back at that, that time. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that was, so closure, I was doing Java at work, which really helped. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I think it really helps and, and it's hard to see if you don't know Java, but it really helps learning closure to know like the semantics of the Java object model and, and the virtual machine and the standard library and stuff. So actually, I wanted to ask you about that because this came up last night. I was at a user group and somebody asked this question. They said, I'm not a Java person. Is that going to be a barrier for me? And I actually said, no. You know, Obviously, it's helpful to understand the JVM and to some degree the Java language because you know you wind up interoperating a lot and that's a right. good thing. But um, do you really, do you think that's, um, I guess maybe where would you, what, what advice would you give to somebody who's starting with Clojure but maybe they know Python, but not Java, or I mean, like I knew C sharp, and C sharp and Java are, you know, they're kissing cousins. They're really similar. But what advice would you give to somebody who doesn't know Java or even C sharp, um, but they want to learn Closure? Is that can they ignore it? Should they make it part of their education? What would you, what advice would you give? Wow, that's a good question because it's so different now. Now that you have like real dependency management and stuff, like even Java didn't have dependency management. I mean, mm-hmm. people were copying jar files manually but i would say like learn how to search for java docs mm. you know it's it's stuff like that it's like all this ecosystem stuff that you're going to have to so so let's say you're doing some problem in closure and you're like how do i get you know the last second of the day right, right. in joda time right like, right like this, it's something that's not obvious, even from the the Jota time docs. So you search and you get a Stack Overflow thing, and it's in Java. So now you have to know Java to be able to translate that into Closure, and it's it's little things like that that you're just gonna have to you're just gonna have to learn enough Java to do that kind of translation. But you have to learn how to read Java docs. Okay. You know that there's there's a package structure, and you want to get the frame version so you get all the classes on the left hand side so you can search through that i mean all these little tricks that you learn just by having to do a lot of java programming they're so natural to someone who's been doing that for a long time that they forget that it's not obvious that the substring you know substring method is just dot substring and it takes there's three different versions of, you know what i'm saying i it's, do although i i wonder whether we might um do the classic uh, closure maneuver and pull things apart because what i hear you saying is that it's important to, to know how to read java artifacts whether that's docs or source code definitely but, but i wonder whether that whether advice to a new person might be you don't really have to learn how to write it that's true that's true you you don't have to know how to write it I rarely write Java code. I mean, almost yeah, never. I mean, that means almost the same never. here. And the other thing is the stack traces. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, it's just the truth. Stack traces are. I mean, I don't. I could only speculate on why they're not 
cleaned up a little, you know, just for display. But it, it's it's a lot of Java stuff in there. In, in terms of like, you know, these are class names and how do the how do the package names and and function names in Closure correspond to to package names in in Java stuff like that. Yeah, there's no question they're verbose. I think the good news for a newcomer is that the there's a fairly small number of rules that let you make sense of them. You know, they you know, there's you have to page up and page down, scroll through, you know, it's it's the rare stack trace you get that doesn't flow over the top of the screen, but um but I think it at least in my experience has been that uh, you quickly learn what to ignore and can for a little experience zoom to the relevant bit. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And like to to be a little optimistic, the closure wrappers for Java libraries are amazing. They just they make it better than Java. Yeah, I mean, I'm speaking in general, right? Sure. But like I've said this before and I kind of get in trouble for it, but uh closure to me seems to just clean up everything it touches. <laughs> like you know, Jota time is nice, but like CLJ time is like way nicer. Or the Apache HTTP client, I don't, I don't think I could use it in Java, but it's the wrapper for it is great. So that's really interesting because, so first of all, uh, again, I'm also not speaking to any particular library, and and I actually do like you. I I think um, CL, like for example, CLJ time is is well done, but I find that um, my path through the landscape of closure wrappers around Java libraries has has often but not always gone something like have a problem, look for a closure library that does it, a pure closure library that does it, don't find one. Find a closure wrapper around some popular Java library, use that, and then, like I said, often but not always, just start using the Java classes directly. I mean, the Hmm. again, you know, different people are solving different problems and have different approaches, but that is something that I find myself, a path I find myself taking increasingly. And of course, the good news for people like me that do that is that the interop is clean and and strong enough that your code remains pretty nice when you do that. Now, I think that there are definitely times where a closure layer adds value. I mean, there are you know times where you can you can make something immutable that's not immutable in the underlying library and that can have real benefits but but there are also times in my experience where um the using the java library directly is is it it lets me be more flexible in how i express uh, my programs that might have a slightly different view of the abstractions encompassed in the java library than the way the um the closure wrapper sees it so have you ever had that experience i have now that now that you mention it I was thinking of uh, specifically Lucene, mm. that I think the Lucene library, not not like Elasticsearch, right, or Solar, but the, the, the embedded one, it is just so configuration heavy and it is so highly optimized that I think you have to go to the Java. You're going to be dealing with Java arrays and, and stuff like that. And, and so I, yes, I, I have had that experience of trying to do it with the wrapper and being like, nope, I have to, if I'm going to have to read these Java docs and learn exactly all the, how all these classes work, I might as well just be constructing those classes. Yeah, I think that's a good heuristic actually is, well, I mean, obviously it, it always depends and we can't give, because I think, you know, between us, we've written a fair amount of closure and, you know, we have 
found times when we do and times when we don't, so we, neither one of us is saying always or never. But um, I think that might be a decent heuristic is, you know, the nth time you find yourself looking at the Java docs in order to use the wrapper library, that maybe you should think about what makes more sense. Yeah, and that's uh, that's actually a, a really interesting point because I think what happens is as you as you learn about the problem more, you tend to want to go down to that level of control. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're just like, oh, I just need like the last, the like I said, the last second of the of the first leap day in the century, you know, something like that. Like, I don't want to understand how to calculate what the leap day is and you know how many seconds it has in the in the julian calendar like you just want somebody to do it for you right (laughs) sure yeah and but then if you're you know writing something that needs to understand all those calculations you could write those calculations yourself you can get a book that tells you what a leap second is and how to calculate it and at that point you you want to be in there writing it yourself Cool. Well, um, awesome. So, um, so I do want to make sure that we turn our attention to some of your more recent efforts. I, I certainly want you to uh, uh, continue the story of you know um, then to now, if you will. But um, but you've been doing a lot of work most recently in getting the word out. I mean, you mentioned the Lisp cast videos, which you've been doing for a long time, and you've kind of uh, ramped those up and turned those in a closure direction. And there's also the uh, Closure Gazette, which I always enjoy reading, that you have been uh, focusing more energy on as well. So, you know, bring us to the present and to those efforts, if you will. Yeah, sure. So I was, I actually got tired of uh, engineering, software engineering. Uh, so I skipped town my wife and I, she was my girlfriend then, but my wife and I went on a round the world trip. Awesome. And we were just living off savings, uh, very, very cheaply and volunteering around the, around the world. And I kind of just didn't do much programming for a while. And then I met some people in Poland who were starting a company and I started working for them and they did their, their company in Haskell. And I was kind of on the fence because I didn't, I didn't have a good experience with Haskell before, but you know it was functional programming and it sounded like a cool opportunity, so I I jumped in, and so I was doing that and I was living in Argentina where where my wife is from, waiting on her visa because we got married. We were gonna come back here, and I just had all these projects on hold. You know how when you're like, I'm not gonna be here that long. Yeah. I don't want to start anything new. Um, so I had all these things on hold. I had the videos. I had, I wanted to do a newsletter. Like they were just like all building up like a like a sonic boom, right? <laughs> and so I crossed the uh, the you know the equator, came here, and like two days after I got here, I just like made a. I signed up for Mailchimp, made a a template and just started throwing all this stuff in the newsletter and put a forum up, put up a site, just, you know, just started it up. So the Gazette was always supposed to be something like, you know, I, I called it the Gazette cause I was looking for a name, you know, it could be closure weekly, it could be closure newsletter something like that. And I thought about Benjamin Franklin and the, uh, his newspaper was like the Philadelphia Gazette or something like that. And so I was like, oh, that's what I want. I want it to be like Benjamin Franklin. Because obviously, if you have the same 
newspaper name as him, you'll have the same success. Of right? course. Yeah, it's a given. <laughs> so, and also I wanted it to be like, not just news, right? It's like, I started looking at the definition of Gazette and it seemed to really resonate with, with the kind of stuff that I wanted to do, even though it, it kind of has an old timey feel too. Like, it's not like, oh, this is the new cool thing. So like the whole point of the Gazette, as I saw it then was like, I've been reading and watching videos and talks and listening to lectures and just doing all this stuff and trying to get a sense of history of the software engineering stuff that I had, that I started as a career. Like I didn't know where everything came from. So I just like doing all this research, all this reading and wanted to share the good stuff that I found because honestly with the the passage of time like the good stuff kind of stands out very easily and so I just wanted to like make a newsletter that's why I call it inspiring it's it's to inspire the closure program because it's not all about closure mm-hmm. um, yep. in fact sometimes I don't even mention closure I've got I've gotten mail about that before. <laughs> They're like, it's called closure. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to have closure in it. Anyway, I wanted it to be like, this is just really good stuff. Doesn't matter, even if it's not about computer science. Like, it's just good stuff that would be interesting to read or to listen to or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's how it started. And that was in 2012 like February 2012 and it's I I got about 500 subscribers in the first month and then it's been slowly growing since then (laughs) so we started this podcast right around the same time so uh, that's and I've been watching I mean I'm sure I've read every episode of the Gazette and you know actually you you said just now something that reminded me of something I wanted to ask you about you said that the the Gazette is not uh, necessarily about closure, but it's about inspiring closure programs, which I think is great right. because there is, you know, one of the things I like about the community is that there's a real willingness to look outside the language and say there are good ideas elsewhere. Like I think that's something that that we do reasonably well as a whole. I am so bad with like people and names, but I'm pretty sure this was you and like an idiot I forgot to verify because I, I, I wanted to talk to you about this, but you wrote a, a post about church and curry types that was you right yeah uh-huh. yeah, yeah so I, I would love it if you would maybe um talk about that a little bit i don't i you know i don't we don't necessarily have to go into into depth on it if you don't want to but it was it was one of one of my favorite things that you've written um i just huh. found it really really I, I don't know i just it was it, it was inspiring actually it was really like maybe not in a make me go write code sort of way but kind of like okay that's that's cool that makes me want to go learn more about these things so uh, for the people that haven't read it, and of course we'll put a link in the show notes, maybe you could uh, give the gist of or explain what your post was about. It, it, it'll be a good way to talk about the ideas that didn't make it into it. Okay. <laughs> so there's this cartoon, and I posted this on my blog too. It's a, it's a Haskell cartoon, but it's about, it's like a Venn diagram, and it says the people who are into type systems the people who are against type systems or, you know, for type systems, against type systems, and then the people who know anything about type systems, <laughs> right? Yep. And, and it's, it, it's trying to say that if you know something about type systems, you're likely to be much more likely to be in the 
proponent of type systems. And if you don't know anything about type systems, you're much more likely to be in the other side, right? So what I kind of wanted to, to do is kind of reverse that and say, well, if you're into dynamic typing systems, you're, you, you're kind of, well, well, let me put it another way. Lambda calculus branched a long time ago. I don't know when exactly. And one branch believed that having um, types be part of the semantics of the language was vital. And the other thought that types were interesting and you should be you should do inference and whatever, but it does, shouldn't change the semantics of the language. And so, so I, I might need to stop you there. Like yeah. if you could. Yeah, say what you mean, stuff. but I know it is, it is, and of course it's an audio format, which you know. Right. But you know, so you're saying, what do you mean when you say it's part of the semantics of the language? Types are part of the semantics of the language. What does that mean? That means that if it's if the language, if the program is not well typed, it's not even a program. Gotcha. It's like you tried to add a string to an integer that is just not a program. It's like forgetting a closed paren in a lisp. It yes. doesn't it's invalid. It's just like a syntax error. Like that's right. not a that's not a closure, right? right? You need to you know close your parens. So there's this the other so that's called that's called uh church from Alonzo Church. He invented Lambda Calculus and I believe also the simply type Lambda Calculus. And then Haskell Curry, who the Haskell language is named after kind of branched off of that and said, I used to think that, but now I, I actually think that there's some value in not having the types be part of the semantics of the language. That branch is the branch that Lisp went down, right? It's, it doesn't have static types. And if you do put a type system on it, in on a Lisp, you have to call it an extrinsic type because it doesn't, it's not in the language. Right. And so what I, what I was kind of trying to say is that that cartoon was from the perspective of people who've gone down this typed branch and looking over at the people who didn't go down that branch and went down the other branch and saying, you don't understand what we're doing over here. And I wanted to have a post that was sort of the opposite. It's like, well, we went down this branch and you don't understand what we're doing. Right. I know you, you like types and you're getting a lot of benefit out of it, but you don't understand what we're doing on this side. Because I mean, obviously I, I've, I, I like Lisp. Like I like the dynamic stuff. Oh, let me let me let me add to that because uh, otherwise I'm gonna sound. Uh, as I'm not gonna represent myself well. I think types have, and that by that I mean static typing, intrinsic typing, is going to have a huge impact on the future of programming. Like I think it's going to be very important that we have static types. And the powerful languages of the future are going to have them. I don't know how far ahead that you have to look to see that, but it's it's going to it's going to happen. What I haven't seen yet, and it's going to happen, but I haven't seen a, I haven't seen, for instance, a SICP, right? Mm. SICP, mm -hmm. structure and interpretation of computer programs, like a, a set of ideas that really, really is is fundamental and changes the way everybody programs and it, it's going to happen someone's going to write it and they and people are going to design type systems around around this fundamental set of ideas but right now 
from from my perspective, I get a lot more value from the dynamic type side. I do miss static typing sometimes. Like I said, I programmed in Haskell uh, for over two years professionally, and there are definite benefits. But I just don't see the level of design that I see in Clojure, in the in the selection of types, in the selection of abstractions available to a programmer. Now, of course, you can make them all right, but I I just haven't seen it. You know, the, in theory, they're there. They could they could just emerge, but I haven't seen it. And it gets kind of in the same way that you could you could program exactly the way we program in Clojure in Java. That's right. You could yeah. totally do that. I mean, obviously, Clojure itself is written in Java, but I'm talking about the programs you write with Clojure, not the compiler. Interesting. Very, very interesting. I, that's sorry. I, I, that's a, a really good summary, I think, of the, the well, nucleus yeah. of that post. Yeah, I go think ahead. I have an interesting perspective. You know, I don't. I've talked to people about this, and they're like, "Wow, you're like one of those rare birds who went down the static type path." got paid to work in Haskell <laughs> and then you're like no not for me <laughs> mm-hmm. and you went back to dynamic typing yeah I, I'm I, I wanted to share that perspective because I don't think it's it's very common well, out I, there I think it's great and I think I think you I, I don't want to put words in your mouth you can agree or disagree but I, I suspect you would say that it's something that people should really experience for themselves and I know for my part I I want to spend some very serious time learning Haskell or, or something like Haskell so that, you know, that I can come at it from a position like you are where it's like, well, I've, I've done it and I've done it seriously and I understand the trade-offs and to have that mindset like in the post where you're like, we could and hopefully people aren't, but, you know, it does happen, you know, stand there and shout at each other, yes, no, yes, no, but oftentimes these things are about, about trade-offs, about understanding how particular technologies apply to the particular problem you're working on and I'd like to be in a position where I can look at it and say, yeah, for these problems that I'm solving right here, I understand all the options and I can make an intelligent selection. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Haskell, learning Haskell has definitely made my closure programs better. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Just the, the structured thinking that you have to do. You know, before I would tend to just like, I'll just use a map and like add keys as I, as I need them, mm-hmm. you know, and like oh uh, sometimes i guess i'll want to pass a string so i'll i'll just check that here and the thinking the amount of thinking before you start programming that you have to do in haskell and the this is getting kind of deep into haskell but like <laughs> when you're th- this is something that's very important in in type systems that your type is like a theorem mm-hmm. and your program is a proof mm-hmm. of that theorem sure it's a constructive proof that you're saying, I can actually do the thing that this type says I can. And so if you're, 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 you have to think at that level of logic, like how, if you can't write the program, it's like, I can't really prove <laughs> that I can do this, that this is going to work. Right. Right. So you're, you're constantly having to, to build it in a very clean and logical way. Yeah, I could I could absolutely see that. I mean, uh, I, like I said, I haven't worked in Haskell. I've I've worked in languages with much um, less capable type systems. But even in my own closure, I've noticed lately that although I'm not currently using even something like core type, which is not quite the same thing, I do find that when I think about my programs, 
I spend more time thinking about what the semantics of a particular piece of data is right. and wanting to like come up with, for example, as a, as a splinter of what you're talking about, really good names for, right. for, for things in the program, which is, I think, an aspect of what you're talking about. And then really um, making sure that I document the code in such a way that it's evident what the, the properties of a particular piece of data are or some kind of construct are yeah yeah uh, for sure in in haskell like you can use the built-in types Mm -hmm. but they'll only get you so far and at some point you're gonna have to really think like what are the different cases and represent each one with a, a different constructor for your type and i mean that kind of thinking is is invaluable i do it all the time now in closure I'm not forced to, and I wish there was some way. And oh, and then sometimes when I am writing a system that's very kind of intricate, I would love for to get some help from the compiler, right? Mm-hmm. I would love for it to to guarantee something, <laughs> like to guarantee that this is going to, like this key is always going to exist, right? Something like that, mm-hmm. or that I'm even passing it a map, like those kinds of things. As, as okay, I say as I'm as I'm tightening it up I, I, I kind of prefer to just kind of jump in and factor things uh, as I go so I don't like my programming to me is the exploration of the ideas and in Haskell I never felt like I had mastered the thought process through coding it was always like a lot of upfront work where I had a piece of paper and was like okay this is I need this type and this type will have these operations, et cetera. Whereas in closure, I'm kind of like, okay, I know I have a number and I'm going to do this to it. And then, you know, I keep, I just keep adding to it and then factoring it out into smaller pieces and things like that. <laughs> so it, it works better with my process. Interesting. Well, this is awesome. You know, we've already been talking for close to an hour and I do want to, yeah. I think, we're, but I want to, before we go and we don't have to, I'm not trying to, to, to cut you off. I, I want to talk about your. We haven't really focused on your your efforts. We mentioned briefly Lipscast. We mentioned the Gazette. You know, you've also got. Uh, I, I noticed on your website you mentioned Functional TV, and you've been, um, you know, you've been uh, trying to get a little more active with letting people know that these are uh, a lot of work. Um, I know video in particular, having done a little bit of it. I don't know if people are aware of this, but producing, say, a minute of video is it, it for every for every n units of time of video you're spending in general somewhere between you know 10 and 200 n minutes on the yeah. production it's oh, really yeah. really hard so uh anyway so i wanted to make sure that we really reserve a little time at the end here before we yeah uh, wind down to give you a chance to uh, let people know what you've been up to and where they can find it uh sure so i'm i'm making uh mostly uh, i'm totally focusing on closure right now uh and i'm trying to make uh video courses in a way i haven't seen done for programming uh, before I've watched a lot of courses for different languages, and I'm trying to actually apply a lot of teaching techniques to to the material. And so I like to do things in the video since it's video. It's not just screencasts, it's animations and diagrams and stuff because I'm trying to help people build a kind of visual model of of how things work. Mm-hmm. So the idea being, uh, for instance, in the web development videos, there's kind of a visual language for how 
the ring adapter and the middleware and the handlers fit together. And so as, as the program that we develop in the video progresses, you can see it visually and understand it in a way that you couldn't even really say, right? You, it, it's hard to talk about those We things. were talking about that earlier on the show, about how it's audio yeah. is a limited exactly. format. Yeah, exactly. So, th- so that's my, my thing. I'm, I'm trying to grow it. I'm working on the core async videos right now. There's actually a preview out. Yeah, like you said, they, the video takes just a really long time. It's, it's unforgiving in the sense that text, like if you're, if you're writing a, a book, let's say, it's a, it's a sizable book that's going to take a while, and you make a mistake on, in the second chapter, it's not the end of the world. You just go back to the, that file and you like backspace and type it again, right? Like right. it's not a big deal. But like I'll be in the editing phase, the post-production phase, and I notice, oh, I made a mistake in the, in the program. I have to go all the way back to the first phase, basically reproduce the environment where I type that code so that I can type it back in and run it and re-record it. Maybe I have to redo the audio because it didn't work right. Right. So anyway, it's, it's a lot of work mm-hmm. is, is what I'm saying. Uh, but it's worth it. I, I really enjoy it. I wish I could spend more time on it. Uh, it's a spare time project now. Uh, I'm working on that. And... Yeah, I just want to see these videos that I'm trying to align with with the closure trajectory, right? Just want to see them help people learn how to program and and do like really excel at software engineering. Yeah, well, I can definitely recommend them based solely on what I've seen of your work in the past. And, and there's one in particular. And again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you did a, a, a cast at one point about point-free programming. That was you, right? No. Okay, no, sorry. Anyway, so, uh, you know, like I said, I love your writing. I think people, um, you know, should definitely check out that post, and they should absolutely check out the, um, I'm sitting here thinking in the back of my head, I wonder if Russ can edit me out being an idiot. Anyway, but, <laughs> no, I, I really, I was talking to people about who we should have on the show, and your name came up several times, you know, because of the work you're doing to educate people on closure, and because they're like, he's a really nice guy, and he really he really says good stuff and I've enjoyed the Closure Gazette and that I really I, I know I mentioned before I really dug the uh, the uh, the Church versus uh, Curry uh, post so I think you've got good stuff to say and so people should absolutely check out your um, check out your videos and if they're not already subscribed to the Gazette do that too where can they find you on the web? So lispcast.com is my blog closuregazette.com is the sign up form for the newsletter and I actually am selling the videos on purelyfunctional.tv. There's an intro to Closure video, and there's a web development and Closure video. There's a core async video coming up. If you're interested in any of the videos or any future videos, just get on the mailing list. There's a sign-up form on every page. And, yeah, that's it. Super cool, yeah. Yeah, I... I... I would second all that. that people should definitely check out your stuff. Oh, one more thing. Yeah, sure. If if you if you run like a closure meetup or a functional programming meetup and you want a discount for your members, just send me an email. My email address is on my site. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for that. Well, cool, man. Is there uh is there anything else you'd like to talk about? I think we're going to have to have you back. I mean, if nothing else, I feel like once I finally go and spend some serious time with Haskell, we could we could have a super fun conversation about about our respective experiences with that. But, you know, <laughs> it's always a good sign when we kind of get to this point in the show and I'm like, well, 
There's yeah, always so we, more. I know. We, we had better wrap it up, but that'd be, so clearly we can continue the conversation sometime. But but before we do um, finally wrap it up with the, uh, I suspect, what you know is the last question, is there anything else you'd like to say before we go or share? Well, just thank you, and I'll be happy to come on any time. Great. Well, that'd this be awesome. This is a lot of fun. Uh, likewise. Well, cool. Well, then we do come to the last question, which, of course, is the outro song. What would you like us to play? So I would like to play Yambo by Salif Keita. Okay, great. Is that another um, song that you heard on your travels around the oh, world? Oh, many times, many times. This is <laughs> this is also from West Africa, like the first song. Cool. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to, to hearing that. It's always fun to me when a guest mentions a song I don't know, and uh, then I go, you know, edit it into the show, and I get to hear it. It's, it's, uh, it's a nice moment. Yeah. Well, super cool. So... Eric Norman, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Um, you're obviously very busy. I mean, look at all the things you've done. So it was great that you were able to take the time and come on and, and have a very, very interesting conversation with us. I really appreciate it. So thanks a ton for coming on. Thank you, Craig. Well, that's been great. We will close it there. This has been the Cognicast. Thanks for listening. <laughs> You have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech, Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guest today was Eric Norman, on Twitter at Eric Normand, E-R-I-C-N-O-R-M-A-N-D. The Cognicast is produced with help from Alex Miller, Damian Mack, Jamie Kite, Lynn Grogan, Michael Fogus, Paul DeGrandis, Sam Umbach, and Stuart Sierra. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. Our producer is Kim Foster. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.